0: To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org.
1: Welcome. My name is Jamie Lemke. I'm a senior fellow in the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. And I'm here today with my colleague, Dick Wagner. So thank you for joining me here today, Dick.
2: Well, I'm glad to be here talking with you. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, Dick Wagner is the Holbert L. Harris Professor of Economics at George Mason University. He's a, an incredibly prolific economist on public choice issues and constitutional political economy, 15 books or monographs, and hundreds of articles. Dick has been collaborating with James Buchanan since his very first days as a graduate student at the University of Virginia. Um, so an over 50-year career so far on public choice, um, and just one year after Buchanan and Tullock wrote The Calculus of Consent, The Logical Foundations of Constitutional Democracy, which you refer to in your book as the Urtext of Constitutional Political Economy, um, so this canonical work. Um, in your latest book, which we're here today to talk about, James M. Buchanan and Liberal Political Economy, Irrational Reconstruction, you explore the analytic foundations of public choice and constitutional political economy, including The Calculus of Consent, but actually even going further back in that analytical tradition. Um, And I just want to start by asking you today, what motivated you to write the book using Buchanan as a central figure?
2: It's hard to say, I think, from my experience, what actually motivates me. I think several things are probably in play. My whole method of doing things has been suddenly something feels right. And it suddenly felt right to write this book on Buchanan several months ago. Now that didn't just come totally out of the blue. There was lots of preparation after all. I had known the man for over 50 years. Uh, He and I had done a number of things together. But more immediately, about two or three years ago at the public choice meetings, I gave a, a plenary address on Virginia political economy. And the uh, acquisitions editor from Lex Books asked if I would convert that into a book. And I said, no, I didn't care to at the time. And then about a year or two later, at the meetings of the American Economic Association, I gave a paper on Italian style public finance and its relation to Buchanan. And the Lexington editor was there again, persistent so, and asked again, if I had the interest. And in the meantime, uh, here in the Hayek program, where the main figures that we talk about here are Vincent and Eleanor Ostrom, um, uh, Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek, and James Buchanan. And of those three sets of people, you had Pete Betke and Paul Lijka wrote a book on the Ostroms, plus a former student uh, at Mason uh, here just recently came out with a book on Eleanor Ostrom. And you have uh, is writing a book on Hayek. Don Boudreau wrote a, another book on Hayek about a year or two ago. And I think those things going on led me to say, oh shoot, Maybe I should do a book on Buchanan, because I've, I've known the chap for 50 years. <laughs> I've read everything he's ever written. And it would be good for the program, because Buchanan is the, would then be the one of this triumvirate for which there wasn't a book. And now I said, OK. So all those things came together. And then one day, I just, OK, it feels right. So do it. And I did.
1: And now we have the complete trilogy. Yeah, we do. (laughs) Um, So the book, it's titled, the title starts with James M. Buchanan, and it is about Buchanan, but it's also very much focused around the ideas that he worked with more so than his personality. Um, So can you talk a little bit about your decision to create an analytical structure for the flow of the book rather than a biographical structure? Surely.
2: I described this book by the subtitle, Rational Reconstruction. And by contrast, the book by Eleanor Ostrom I mentioned by this former student, Vlad Tarko, was titled, Intellectual Biography. And the difference between the intellectual biography and the rational Reconstruction is a matter of what you as the author are trying to accomplish with a with a intellectual biography, if I wrote an intellectual biography of Buchanan, I would be trying to explain how did Buchanan in 1949 come to be Buchanan in 2013 when he died. That would be a kind of an effort to portray the various steps he took, encounters he had along the way, change the mind he had, trying to lay out the various steps that led over that 64 uh, year period to him becoming the Buchanan we recognize at the end of his life. That's intellectual biography. That is something I don't believe I have the talent to do, nor do I have the interest to do. It it's, requires much more of an, a, of an ability to wrestle with detail, which is much more the problems of my wife and our family, where I'm much more of a theoretical kind of guy. And so, what I did was a Rational Reconstruction. What you meant by Rational Reconstruction is, you stand at the end of his life surveying his body of accumulated work. Pieces of that work uh, didn't interest him; weren't part of his core, but much of it was. And so, I asked the Rational Reconstruction case then is, is there a coherent logic that undergirds the prime body of his work that gives it a coherence beyond what he would have recognized at any stage when he was developing that body of work and that's what i did in that book
1: so when you are standing today and doing performing the exercise of looking back over the the long career one of the ways you describe the the overarching uh, project that Buchanan uh, put forth was that it was a project um, that a hedgehog would do rather than a fox, to borrow the Isaiah Berlin distinction, where the fox is, you know, cleverly coming up with the response to everything, um, has a million different ideas, and the hedgehog has this one. Uh, you know one defensive maneuver I think in Berlin's analogy but the really one point that they're driving forward and you pull that from that uh, 1949 piece by Buchanan which comes up throughout the book um, but what is that one big idea so you know what are Buchanan's spikes if he's the hedgehog?
2: I'm not sure I, I would put it as one big idea from which it sprang so much as that if you take where he began, you end up everything he did afterwards, most everything he did after that, followed from that point of departure even though he wasn't aware of it. What I mean by that is he was a graduate student at the University of Chicago between 1946 and 1948. He did his dissertation and the subject matter was public finance. He disliked The way public finance was presented throughout the world and at the University of Chicago at that time and he wanted to do public finance differently. The way public finance had been done and is still the dominant way today is to treat government or what we call the state as some kind of external uh, entity, a kind of a lord of the manor that's in charge of running the place. so a president becomes a chief executive of the nation. Buchanan wanted, he was a thoroughgoing Democrat, and he wanted to ask how could you write a, and develop a theory of public finance when you take seriously, really seriously, the idea that democracy is a system where people govern themselves, rather than being a system where someone governs you, that I think Buchanan really he didn't want to be bossed and he thought no one should really want to be bossed and so but yet you have problems of governance and so it's people coming together to govern and to regulate their activities and that was how he wanted to do public finance but that concern with trying to explain how it is that you could genuinely have a social and political system organized on the principles of self-governing people in turn led him into a whole variety of of lines of thought. I described in the book that Buchanan was like a gigantic oak tree where a sapling was uh, planted 64 years before his death and that trunk of that sapling was then How do you think about Poli in a self-governing, among a self-governing set of people? But that in turn led into some, what I call, six different branches that were nonetheless there in that very initial question, if you think about it. For instance, how can a set of people govern themselves? Suppose you have just a small group, 500 people. 500 people can't govern themselves, they're just a mob. In order for 500 people to govern, you have to have conversations. 500 people can't converse without some kind of procedures, orders. That gets into Buchanan's lifelong interest in constitutional political economy because large groups just by themselves, masses, are just mobs. In order to become a governing kind of entity, you have to have some kind of of constitutional structure that governs relationships, positions of authority, responsibility, and so forth. So that was one huge branch uh, that followed from that. If you're going to do a theory of public finance for self-governing people, you have to get into these questions of how groups are of uh, people are put together. Then another branch that follows from that is questions well. What processes lead to the generation of groups of people? What are the principal? Because groups of people are associations among people. Uh, that, in turn, led Buchanan to have a lifelong interest in federalism and federal forms of the government as another, as an instance of how to have an association of people, where with federalism, what you have is not one government over a whole set of people, but associations of higher and lower uh, governments and and that uh, stemmed from his interest as well. And then you know continuing on with that trig going up. And we're talking about politics. You're talking about settings where relations and interactions among people are not governed by what we recognize as the principles of private property, but are are act undertaken by a collection of people. Now this creates a number of particular problems. For instance, even at my age I could uh, conceivably go out and invest in a hickory forest, a set of hickory trees to make hickory saplings to make furniture. Now when those trees mature and are harvested 40 years from now, I'm not, probably not gonna be around to harvest the game, but I can still uh, rationally make the investment because within the principles of private property, I'm liable for the value consequences of my actions. If I manage the forest poorly, it's my estate, uh, my children, and grandchildren uh, are gonna suffer for that. Whereas when you get into public, Political situations, that kind of of, of uh, responsibility weakens because politicians are need to be reelected every two years, four years, or six years, and so there is isn't that same kind of summing up where you can make decisions today to bear costs because you determine that the future benefits make it worthwhile. That plays out differently in democracies. It plays out, among other things, in a strong tendency to issue debt rather than to finance things by taxation, Uh, because if you issue debt, the costs are shifted much more into the future rather than born in the present. And so that was, again, a lifelong interest of his that sprang as well from his initial, Recognition that he wanted to rewrite the whole body of public finance in a way that speaks to the problems that a self-governing Republican people face. And then another one uh, of the branches uh, in that big oak tree that Buchanan ended up being, has to do, he was certainly very much of a, of a, classical liberal type of fellow who believed in the widest possible range of individual action. But he also recognized that individuals must be responsible as well for maintaining the system. There was a famous story then repeated thousands of times as far as I know that it was at the end of the American Constitutional Convention. When a woman outside the convention asked Benjamin Franklin, hey Ben, what kind of a government did you folks create in there? And Franklin responded, a republic, if you can keep it. Now implicit in Franklin's response was recognition that to keep that kind of liberal form of governance is going to require people to undertake actions to preserve it. But we have that saying, I don't know who, from whom it comes, but eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Now, how high is the price of liberty? Well, that's a question that comes naturally to someone who is interested in self-governing republics as as Buchanan was. And then the final uh, branch of Buchanan's big oak tree was, see this all began, Buchanan's initial interest began with you might call in the realm of positive or explanatory economics. It started from an interest just trying to understand better how a world of self-governing people could actually operate, could actually put together what its problems would be. But they're also behind that since we're all creatures who occupy geographical space that we live together in close proximity to one another. Uh, we realize that on the one hand, you know, we, we get advantages from one another, we can trade with one another, but we also, you know, we get in people's nerves. We irritate one another, too. These are all, that's all part of the deal of living together. And so, uh, the question of how we do conduct our living together uh, is his lifelong interest in the goodness or the badness of alternative arrangements by which this uh, this, this does. And so, you know, in that sense, you know, looking back at his work from the time of his death, it just occurred to me, hey, there is just a very strong logic that as if everything he wrote was there at the start. It's like you probably heard that story of Michelangelo uh, and a sculpture and oh how beautiful and michelangelo responded as i recall the story no i didn't make that i just released it and that's what i think it was with buchanan he released what was in and his very foundational dislike of what he what he thought passed for public finance at the time he was a student
1: so this is a dramatic oversimplification of the structure you just built But you have all of these superstructures, constitutional politics, uh, self-governance, post-constitutional politics, the moral and social philosophies that come out of this analysis. And at the root of all of them is this idea that public finance should be uh, a way of understanding relations between free democratic peoples, rather than simply being a science that exclusively speaks to relationships between rulers and their subjects, or a despotic kind of public choice. So how, at the time that Buchanan is doing this early work, how revolutionary is the idea that these public activities can be founded on a democratic basis rather than um, more of a despotic basis within the, the science of public finance?
2: Well, there were certainly precursors to the work that Buchanan did. Uh, in his doctoral dissertation, Buchanan cited two uh, precursors to there. One was Knut Wicksell, a Swede, who throughout his, Buchanan's career, Buchanan regarded as the single most important person for his constitutional work, uh, who thought of the same kind of question of, how could you have a, a parliamentary system suitable for Sweden where in the underlying Swedish parliamentary activities would reasonably strongly reflect a consensus among the the Swedish population. And how could you go about, the Wixell asked questions, how could you go about imagining a, a mode of doing Swedish political business that would fit that image? And then the other source that Buchanan uh, mentioned was an Italian fellow, Antonio De di Marco, uh, who Buchanan later spent a year in Italy uh, studying a variety of Italian authors. Uh, De Vitti had only has had one book published in English, and Buchanan had read that. It was published and translated in 1936, and it too offered. Two different ways of ideal types of democratic forms. What he called a a cooperative democracy and what he called a monopolistic form. And the difference between the two forms fit with Buchanan's image of self-governing republics versus uh, republics dominated by special interest groups. And those were those corresponded to the two forms. And so. Uh, in many ways, what became known as public choice in the very late 1960s, early 1960s, was already in play in Italy in the 19, actually going back to 1888 and into the 1900s, because you had a variety of Italian public dance theorists who likewise, uh, sought to develop a explanation of how governments actually do their business as against someone saying how a government, they think a government should do its business. Like the, the, the long tradition of polyfinance was, you might say, concerned with the practice of statecraft. What would be a good tax system? Adam Smith, In his Wealth of Nations, had these four maxims for a good tax system. Uh, At the time that Buchanan was a student, the two main figures in public finance were Brits Francis Edgeworth and Alfred Pagu. Now, uh, Pagu, excuse me, uh, Edgeworth formulated a good tax system as one that would minimize the the uh, utility losses the taxes imposed on people, however you would ever determine that. There is an Italian named Emil Cari Pugliani, who wrote a theory of public finance about, the 1903 maybe. And his concern wasn't in trying to say to advance his thoughts on what would be a lovely tax system, but was rather in saying, well, the world has a rhyme and a reason to it. Uh, And Huviani set about saying, well, there's a rhyme and reason all that happens under the sun. Economizing actions are useful principles for understanding that. And he set about trying to explain the kind of, what he thought would be the logic by which uh, tax systems were established, were revised over time. you know, Puviani has never been translated into English. but has been translated into German it was translated in 1960. And the sponsor of that translation was a man named Gunter Schmulders. Uh, he had, he was doing work in what uh, became, was known as fiscal psychology at the time, and was kind of a forerunner of behavioral economics today. And Schmulder tr- chose to translate Puviani. He probably chose to translate Puviani and not Davidi because Davide had already been translated into the German in 1934. And so he, he presented Puviani, but he also in a, wrote a foreword where he said uh, Italian public finance has long had a political science character to it, where you have an integration of economics and politics. And with these ideas, often giving a very good uh, fit with reality. And so, you know, I think public choice, in fact, I speculated in something I once, I think even the book, I don't remember, but speculated that, suppose you took a bunch of these Italians. See, the public choice uh, had its first, got named at a meeting in 1968. It had a couple of prior meetings in Charlottesville when I was a student there. Uh, and it got established in 1960. And I, I posed the hypothetical question, suppose like, you know, the story of Rip Van Winkle, I guess, and he, he fell asleep for 20 years and woke up, and suppose you took these Italian dudes like Davidi and um, Pantaleone and so forth, and they had fallen asleep. And then they woke up, and here they were in Charlottesville, excuse me, and, or in Chicago in 1968. And they were jumping into the discussions that were going on about what was then called non-market decision-making. I think those characters would have been right at home. The Italians and the Americans would be speaking the same language. Sure, they have somewhat different emphases and so forth, but they're all speaking the same language. And I think what, in my estimation, what Buchanan foremost did was really serve to connect what was a short-lived Italian orientation towards collective activity uh, and brought it uh, forward under the the rubric now of public choice.
1: So these Italian public finance scholars and Newt Vixell in Sweden, it sounds like both groups were influenced by what was going on politically at the time in those nations, or at least of their observations of the working of actual political systems. And Buchanan also, uh, both in his own work and in his interactions with Vincent Ostrom, um, seems to draw quite a lot from the American founding also. So I'm curious a little bit about what your reflections are on that relationship as a political economist between um, what is often interpreted as an extremely abstract theory, something like the way that uh, Buchanan and Tullock build up from... First principles, a uh, you know, an, a complicated constitutional democracy, and the calculus of consent. This often seems very abstract. Sometimes even a version of social contract theory, although you decisively reject that in your discussion in the book. Um, but what is the relationship between that task of abstract theorizing and the actual observation of the political environment around him? In you maybe in Buchanan's project, but maybe in public
2: choice more generally. You're right, Buchanan was a very abstract theorist. I think it goes back to his disciplinary background as an economist. Growing up in the 1940s into the 1950s, that's the way economic theory was presented, in a stylized, formalized way. I've often thought it would have been lovely and wonderful if Buchanan had been in the same program as Vincent Ostrom was, for instance, because if you look at Vincent Ostrom, that you find someone who has exactly the same kind of deep down interests, orientations, but Ostrom was a political scientist, and he, I think his work reflected more of that disciplinary way of doing things that was in play back then, of of a greater interest in descriptive accuracy, descriptive realism, and, but yet both of them deeply shared the same kind of interest in the opportunities and the problems that faced self-governing republics in how both to how they might operate and how they might maintain themselves Vincent Ostrom wrote a book, uh, a long title that I probably got to butcher, but I think it was something like the vulnerability of democracies or something like that. But uh, people can look it up under Vincent Ostrom and find it. but uh, it was a it was it was a book that took some of Tocqueville's uh, visions for self-governing republics and tried to work with some of the implications of Tocqueville's visions, uh, how that relates to ideas about public choice, and his, Ostrom's work, Buchanan's work. I have sometimes described, uh, for instance, Vincent Ostrom back in 1971 wrote a book uh, called The Political Theory of the Compound Republic. That was subsequently uh, revised, I think it's in its third edition now, although well, he's deceased, but he had a, and took on a co-author who, uh, named Barbara Allen who revised it. And I've, I've often, on several occasions, have described Ostrom's uh, Compound Republic book as offering a flying buttress to the calculus of consent, that in part with Ostrom's flying buttress being much more fully grounded in actual political processes and institutional arrangements, the calculus consent had a very austere kind of of, of con, points of contact with actual practice. Ostrom had much more of that, and of many times I thought, "Gee, that would have been so nice had the two been together," because I think. Uh, as in, in many cases, uh, you know, the overall vision, much like I think what the Hayek Program is really seeking to pursue is recognition. That sure, uh, some of the uh, theoretical thoughts need to make contact with some of the practical matters uh, and the maintenance of free or liberal societies is itself a pro- project that calls upon a variety of kinds of talents and capacities and activities. It's a project that's far too big for any to be encompassed in any one person's head and is a, itself a kind of a problem of collective organization of, of, of concerns.
1: It seems though that Buchanan was very critical of some particular types of interaction with Practical politics, um, specifically engaging and actually making specific policy recommendations. One of my favorite uh, stories, I think, in the appendix where you engage in some personal reflection is when you tell about being in his class for the first day and attempting to ask, answer the question about what was wrong with the American tax code and you know, being an enthusiastic young student, you had all these ideas, things you've been learning and reading over the summer, and he told you. Mr. Wagner, we're Democrats
2: here, not autocrats, mm-hmm. paraphrasing. Yeah, yeah, you, <laughs> you bring back a long, long way. Yeah, I had spent the summer uh, before going to Virginia reading, I read, the had a textbook on public finance. Uh, I read things by his academic advisor who he didn't like. I didn't know that at the time. On, uh, <laughs> on on tax reform, all this stuff, and he asked this question. uh, What was wrong in the very first question in class? What was wrong with the American tax system? And I piped up and answered the question. I thought beautifully about closing loopholes, lowering rates and all this, and he shot right back Mr. Wagner. He had no business answering a question like that. Yeah, we're Democrats, I didn't know what he meant. Uh, that, That came later, but what he meant was Part of his wanting to get away from what I think he regarded as feudal modes of thinking where public finance, collecting business, was the province of a few public officials who had to be regarded as doing the right thing because public business was too complicated for ordinary people. And so he thought it wasn't any particular economist business to say what a good tax system should be. He thought it, what a good tax system would be would be what a, a set of people would generate out of a deliberation among themselves. And that's the kind of the image he had. Everything he did was uh, centered around that kind of orientation that he probably said to himself, I want to really plumb deeply how you think about problems of self-governance where the typical way that economists to this day think about government is government is some entity that uh, you can instruct to do the right thing that can bypass uh, people and their interests or or their beliefs and that was something that Buchanan uh, disagreed with thoroughly and so that notion that hey we're Democrats here uh, he later I remember you as you remind me he, he later in that same semester he had a lot of these free-ranging discussions with students over different papers and there was a one instance where I remember Buchanan piping up and say it seems as though today only mr. Wagner and I are Democrats <laughs> It, it was something that you know, was really in deeply in, in his in his foundational beliefs.
1: It sounds like you made a lot of progress over the course of just that one semester then. You got upgraded to Democrat status.
2: Yeah, well, you know, that, uh, it, it didn't happen at one instant because I, I still remember, you know, we'd have roughly every week or every second week, we would have paper assignments to turn in. and. He had this, uh, he signed at the end of this first class period, after I embarrassed myself, he has signed this uh, topic, said, I've heard it said that if a fly, I think it was a fly, it might have been a flea, but a grasshopper but it was some insect. He said if this insect were like nine times as big as it is, it wouldn't be able to fly, and it might even crush under its own weight. Then he said, well, you know, government has grown. It used to be less than 10% and now it's up around 40%. But I think there's an interesting problem of fiscal dimension here. And so for next week, you all go out and write a small essay on the problem of fiscal dimension. (laughs) I, you know, I put aside my embarrassment for a minute, shot up my hand. Mr. Buchanan, could you give us a clue of what you're looking for? And he instantly shot back. I said, Mr. Wagner, if I knew what I was looking for, I wouldn't care to hear what you think. So, <laughs> oh, that, 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 Yeah, so, but I, I, I shortly thereafter, I, I came to understand his, his mode of instruction and I think internalized a lot of that myself, which is and we're talking about advanced graduate work now, because you know I I took Buchanan, I was a first year graduate student, but the class was all second-year students, and I took it because I was excused from taking, the, the first year had a standard four course program then, but I was excused from the math econ class from my background, and so I told Leland Yeager, who was Director of Graduate Studies then, okay, I want to take Buchanan. He said it wasn't advised, he said I still want to take it. And so I did, but I probably, I didn't have any of the background knowledge that other people had who had been through the, the first year, or else came to Virginia from a master's somewhere else. And so I was really first essay you know. I remember he, he gave this uh, fiscal dimension and I wrote up my uh, three pages on the old Smith Corona portable electric typewriter. And I got back, uh, turn it in one week, the next week when you meet he passes it back and he he wrote a remark in the bottom of the page. You have an interesting idea here But you need to get more directly to the point. B minus. And so, you know, after that, I wasn't sure I won't. school was for me. uh, Well, thank goodness you stuck with it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And you wound up being frequent co-authors with Buchanan, so he must have felt pretty good about the direction of your progress. Uh, One of the subjects that you wrote about a lot together early on was deficit and debt financing and so I want to ask you a little bit about that project because I know it's a research agenda that you've continued to work on also um, so what coming out of this Buchananite public choice perspective um, you know what is what role is there for democratic peoples who are engaging in this kind of self-governing system where they are able to engage in this kind of cooperative collective action with each other in that democratic framework. What scope is there for those peoples to take on debt? And then maybe a little bit about what some of the pathologies are that come along with that because of course we rarely get uh, one side of that coin without the other (laughs) in in all areas of life, but especially these public projects. Um, But Just a little bit about your work on debt.
2: Oh, public debt provides some really fascinating and, and difficult questions and issues. Because if you, if you start from ordinary private debt, uh, debt contracts are, are promises. A, prom- a promise, you're borrowing an asset from someone else for which you have an obligation to repay. And so all credit contracts have this kind of structure where someone has an asset which they lend you and they can expect to get that asset back uh, uh, with with uh, monetary loans with interest or even in such cases as you might go out and uh, borrow a bed because you're having some company come for a week and you're expected to Return that bed in the right condition and so forth. That it's all credit contracts have this kind of problem with them, and the law of credit contracts in private business is well developed uh, to to deal with the problems that arise. But what happens when you get to democratic systems, um, where who who owes what to whom when a democratic government goes in debt. See, we we speak about government being indebted, but governments can't be indebted. Monarchs of old could be indebted. Monarchs of old had their, they had lands, had various estates, their own wealth. Uh, Now, people who might lend to the monarchs of old sometimes could be fearful of being uh, paid back. Sure, but uh, still, when a monarch was indebted, it was clear who owed what to whom. may not get repaid, but you know who owed what to who. But when a democr- democracy, a democratic government goes into debt, who owes what to whom? If you ask that question, it's not apparent what the answer is. Because the, the government will float an issue of bonds that promises to pay bondholders at some future period. But who exactly is obligated to pay uh, those bondholders? Obviously they say the answer as a class would be taxpayers. But did taxpayers choose to issue the debt in the first place to borrow? Many taxpayers, perhaps some taxpayers did and other taxpayers didn't. You can, I think, feel pretty confident that there are many taxpayers who would probably rather have had the spending project not done and not had to pay taxes in the future. So you can have people within democratic systems who are forced debtors uh, through the collective decision uh, process. And so I think this is one of many instances in which a A language and conventions of thinking that develop in terms of private interaction can get corrupted when they are brought to bear to public interaction and so I think it's a a huge confusion of thought to think of democratic governments themselves as being indebted when they there's no agent in that democracy who bears the, the liability, the responsibility for making good when things don't work out. If you have a uh, government that sponsors a big tunnel project under a, a river, that's gonna spend $100 million, it borrows. And then the costs go up $200 million, $300 million. Uh, Does the organizer of the project bear the loss? No. It becomes part of the general government indebtedness. And it's spread over whoever can be hit up for the money. And that's you know, that says that government debt is a handling of contracts as it were. Our uh, obligations that extend over long durations of time are particular problems because there's no one who is responsible for that obligation when they leave office, and it's a problem that goes far beyond debt. It's a problem that's uh, comes up in any kind of governmental-based promising, where promises extend over longer periods of time. It's you know we talk about like the official I guess American debt is up around 20 trillion or so, but there's also a you know, a massive debt buildup into what is uh, things like uh, Medicare, and so forth, that by some estimates are in the order of a hundred trillion dollars or so. Which, in all these things, if you apply the principle of contract, when you talk about what they call as a unfunded liability, what that means is that the promises politicians have made to people in their capacities as recipients of benefits from programs exceed the promises or commitments that have been made to people in their capacities as taxpayers. There's a hundred trillion dollar gap between the promises that politicians make to one set of people in their capacities as taxpayers and the promises they make to another set of people in their Capacities as beneficiaries, and so it's an arrangement that is knowingly at the surface a form of systemic line, you might say, that built into this democratic system is a form of built-in lying, that uh, that people knowingly know that this can't be maintained, but yet that's an outcome of the system, and I think those are the kinds of things that. Uh, that are of great significance in terms of trying to understand and wrestle with the problems of what is, what does it require for there to be self-governing republics? And it means that there's, part of that has to do with the responsibilities that you bear as a member of a self-governing republic. Do you ever think that, for instance, when politicians, oh, they, they talk about what they're gonna do Uh, They talk about what their benefits are going to get from what they do. Now, the basic theory of economic organization or economic equilibrium, if you will, says that every transaction has two sides. It has what we recognize as a demand side and and a supply side. The politicians always emphasize what you might call the demand side, what we get. They don't emphasize the supply side of who has to do what to make that happen. But yet you can't do one without the other. You go back to old Herbert Hoover. Or old Herbert, you know, he had this minor little uh, uh, entitlement called a chicken in every pot. That that came from Herbert Hoover. Now, how can you promise everyone to have a chicken in their pots if you don't at the same time force a system of constricted labor onto people to make those chickens happen. They don't just happen. But uh, political discourse, political rhetoric, always, and almost always, stresses the good side, the the demand side. It under-emphasizes the supply side of how that is going to be made uh, uh, possible. And that also speaks then to responsibility again that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Uh, that was, again, that was one of Vincent Ostrom's big themes, too, in his book about Tocqueville. was what? It, what's the responsibility side of a system of self-governing republics?
1: Yeah, about that relationship between liberty and responsibility, and actually through every aspect of your answer to that question, you can see Um, the analysis calling back to this fundamental question about self-governance that you raised at the beginning which is that sometimes we just uh, get on each other's nerves and we get in each other's ways and we want different things and we want things that are sometimes mutually incompatible and how do we resolve those kind of very fundamental tensions and one of the things that you called out just now but also in the book is that many of those processes of negotiation and voluntary consent to government systems, you want people to be free and to have liberty to engage in those processes. But if you don't have the responsibility side of that equation also, you can get people engaging in behaviors that are quite destructive. Um, when we think about this relationship between liberty and responsibility, that kind of, that's putting demands on people for how they are supposed to behave. So we get this intermingling in Buchanan's research between the positive economics and this more social or moral philosophy. Um, so what is the, the relationship between those two? Are, are they similar, similarly inseparable in the way that liberty and responsibility are? Um, if we're gonna think about the world and, and get the kind of explanation and understanding that uh, Buchanan seems to want us to.
2: Yeah, I think uh, we're we're totally wrapped up in a uh, world of inseparabilities on, on, in, in various of these ways, and I think it goes back that yes, we, as you said, we do have the ability to get on each other's nerves and each other's ways and so forth, and uh, I think behind that there are some. Uh, significant questions of how do you really conceive the problem of people living together in close geographical proximity. C. Uh, Buchanan always wanted to think of that problem ultimately as having a resolution. And I think that's partly why you, or you referred earlier to the austerity of, or abstractness of some of his thinking compared, say, to Vincent Ostrom. But I think Buchanan had a tendency to think, well, there's there must be something, some core, at which we can all agree. And that becomes, in his scheme of thinking, a constitutional moment. We can all agree, and here's how we're going to, rules by which we're going to live together, and then uh, All of our subsequent disagreements are nonetheless uh, resolvable within that original framework of rules. Uh, That's not the only way to think about it. I don't think that's necessarily the way that Vincent Ostrom think about it. Uh, That's not the way that, for instance, Buchanan's one-time co-author Gordon Tulliff thought about it. It's also not the way a lot of very significant Italian uh, social philosophers about it. You know, one of, probably the main point of divergence between Buchanan and myself in thinking about these matters is I think Buchanan shied away from a number of Italians, going back to Machiavelli actually, that uh, he, you know, I, I think he could usefully have brought in, into his field of vision. Uh, there's a question there of, It's a question of whether at base societies are, are can be totally, I think, peaceable uh, places, or whether the peace that you can experience is held together inside of a latency of, of conflict among people, getting back to these questions of, no, on the one hand, we recognize gains from trade. That's what the, fundamentally what economics is about, is the exploitation of gains from trade. But if you also bring in that, yeah, we do annoy each other, we also have quarrels about precedence. You take a, a set of people, 50 people want to be in an orchestra they want to be first violin. Only one's going to be. And so there's going to be perhaps conflict, intrigue, uh, disputation, and all that. That's all part of the social deal. And uh, so uh, this kind of, you know, leads to the question of whether you think about uh, a, a social economy in terms of some kind of closed model where you have an answer, finally. There's a final answer. Uh, you know, I one time wrote a paper, actually, comparing to Canada and Tulloch. And I, called it something about East of Eden or West of Babel. That was the subtitle. I forget the title. Uh, but Tulloch uh, well, excuse me. Buchanan theorized from East of Eden in the sense that in the Eden uh, story there is a point of primal niceness and sweetness. And then there was the ejection from the garden. And so you could say there's a hearkening back in the constitutional story to regain Eden. I think that's Buchanan. Then you get to the uh, Babel. Well, that's Toul. Babel is just cacophony. People dispersed from Babel with multiple languages, and that's Buchanan. Excuse me. That's Toul's notion of the social dilemma: is how to get by there in that kind of arrangement and. You know, I, I think the social problem of living together is, you know, is something that has many dimensions, many kinds of complex lines of thought. And you know, again, I would just affirm that the problem is too big for any one person to think about and digest and, and give some final answer, but it's part of an ongoing intellectual and scholarly process. And I think uh, Buchanan's work in particular tried to say that governance is our problem. See, the usual kind of political he encountered is that the implicit uh, political regime was a feudal regime. See, if you go to feudalism, and of course, I mean, this country was founded on the rejection of all things feudal and the European heritage. Which is one of the things why I, I dislike so much, so much modern emphasis in saying well, we should be more like Europe when this country was founded on not Europe. And so, in that kind of orientation, the feudal orientation, you had lords of the manor. Uh, Governance was the business of the lords of the manor. Now, you could find feudal regimes where governance went well. Peasants were very happy with things. You could also find feudal governance where ordinary people were treated miserably and and, uh, harshly and so the world of feudal governance provides many examples ranging from the whole gamut of experiences, but they're all feudal governance. They were all cases where, where the democratic scheme of thought is that governance is all of our business. Uh, now Buchanan's own normative values is that's how it should be, That it should, be, and that's a desirable social arrangement. Is for all of us to participate in our governance. But it's not an easy arrangement. In fact, the, pretty much going back to the ancient Greeks, all thought that democracy was at best a kind of a temporary form of government that would exist until people came increasingly to recognize that they can vote more just for themselves by imposing costs on other people. And, uh, you know, that's the, that was, a kind of a widespread claim based upon a lot of historical evidence, and I think we right now are living into that uh, very same kind of question, same kind of issue that is going to be for the future to determine the outcome.
1: To wrap up, I just want to ask you one last question, not asking you to be Cassandra here, but in the spirit of operating in the extended Present and maybe figuring out where this tree is growing, where do you think are some of the most productive research directions for people who want to do research in public choice and constitutional political economy in the spirit of Buchanan?
2: Well, I think the, where I think this is leading or, or should be heading is in this kind of direction of economics, political economy becoming a Genuine social science. If you look at economic theory, if you go back to the time of Adam Smith, economics was a social science. It was concerned with trying to understand the properties of societies, recognizing that people had certain principles of action that we refer to as economizing actions. All that means is that people continually try to seek for states of living that they value more highly than what they have now, and that. Simple universal principle of economizing action in the classical economists led into a that was a way of thinking about society and different forms of social organization and their properties. And when you get to the neoclassical period in economics, uh, things got uh, subverted or turned away in the, what you had over the course from the late 19th into the 20th century to, into today is the treatment of economics as a theory of choice or of rational action. This didn't happen all at once. It happened in in stages or in steps. But if you start from the idea, I don't want to get involved in too much in technical economic theory, but you start from the idea that an economic system is now to be treated as an entity that conforms to some principles of the theory of equilibrium. What that means, what that enables, is you can treat a society, you can reduce a society to a single person, call it a representative individual, and do all of your theorizing in terms of that representative individual. What happens thereby is all of the social processes, interactions, and so forth disappear. It's like, and there have been models, many uh, we call Crusonia models, imagining Robinson Crusoe. There's lots of things of rational choice you can illustrate by Robinson Crusoe. However, if you had 100 Robinson Crusoe's on their individual islands, you would have 100 tales of Robinson Crusoe. But suppose instead, those 100 Robinsons are all washed up on the same island. You're going to have all kinds of new situations, new problems, new phenomena arising that would never arise to any one of those 100 Robinson Crusoes. And it's that interaction amongst all these people where the real material, I would say, of political philosophy and political economy and social philosophy arise because Robinson Crusoe by himself has no questions of mine or yours, has no one to quarrel with, no disputes, no courts, no jails, nothing. And it's only when you have multiple people interacting that you generate not only multiple opportunities for trade, but again also multiple ways in which we can get after on each, on each other's nerves, and so I say that where I think this whole scheme of Virginia political economy leads is to recognition that what material we're dealing with is a is is fundamentally a theory of society. That uh, it's it in this sense i mentioned earlier that Buchanan really tried to bring forward the Italian theorist into the present in his, in his treatment of public finance. I also, I think in that book, mentioned that really Buchanan is totally misconstrued or misinterpreted as being a standard neoclassical economist with right-wing views. He was nothing of the sort. Sure, he was a, a, a classical liberal. He believed in the importance of individual liberty for for human development and our, our capacities and thought by and large we should be able to govern ourselves and not be bossed by someone else. And that was very much part of it. But he was fundamentally resided with, operated within the British or English classical tradition of political economy, going back to Adam Smith, David Hume, people like that. The only place he diverged from this classical tradition was he didn't get confused about diamonds and water. You know, Adam Smith uh, repeated this diamond water paradox that uh, it's a a paradox that water is necessary for human life, but diamonds are so much more valuable. But uh, the classical economists repeated this confusion for a long time. It took the new classical period to resolve it. Uh, but so Buchanan wasn't confused about the Diamond Water Paradox, but that's the only sense in which he was really a standard neoclassical economist at his core. Other than that, he was a classical economist. What that meant, and there was a wonderful paper published in 1960 by Nathan Rosenberg called Institutional Aspects of the Law of Nations. And what r- Rosenberg pointed out and, was that Smith was not at all to be, cent- was not at all centrally concerned with any notion of an efficient allocation of resources. He was rather concerned with the institutional arrangements by which people live together. And it's that because, see, think about it. When you talk about r- efficient resource allocation, but resources can't allocate themselves. They can't. They're inanimate objects. Only people can allocate resources. But they do so inside of some kind of set of arrangements that governs their relationships with one another. And so that means that your, the foreground of your theoretical concern, conceptual concern, really has to be on the arrangements that we've developed to govern our relationships where the allocations that we create, they just they just come out of it. They're, they're, they're not of any uh, first-order interest. And that, I think, was the uh incoherent kind of vision, it was animated Buchanan's program. I think it's the program that was alive when Virginia political economy got started in, in Charlottesville in the uh, mid-1950s. And I think it's a a vision that's alive and well today. It's a vision, I believe, that very much the IAC program here with its uh, uh, threefold emphasis on philosophy, politics, and economics is, I think, uh, very much in a position to carry forward, and I hope to be uh, actively doing that for many, many, many long years in the future.
1: (laughs) Well, I hope so, too. And uh, we've been talking today about Richard Wagner's newest book, James M. Buchanan and Liberal Political Economy, Irrational Reconstruction. We didn't get through a fraction of what it covers. So if you're interested in more, please pick up a copy. Um, It's always a pleasure talking to you, Dick. And today was no exception. So
2: thank you so much. Thank you so very much. I always love talking to you too.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast.